Okay, well, um, the topic of faith at work is uh, actually boring. Um, uh, as it stands, I don't have a lot of interest in it. Um, uh, so I've got to confess that at the start. Um, and and, and I, I found, to my, to my pleasure, I, I had a discussion with Justin Moffat, who runs the church across the road, and Justin's quite interested in faith at work, and he said he had the, the same reaction, it was rather thin and uninteresting, because as it's often framed at the moment, it's rather pragmatic, you know, Christianity in the marketplace and so on, and um, I mean, I happen to be a, a believer right in the, in the, in the, in the, in the swirling centre of the marketplace, but as, as presented faith at work, <laughs> um, I think it's got a long way to go. Um, but, but that having been said, I, I, I think the faith at work movement, it's, sometimes it's called the marketplace, and again, I'm uneasy, very uneasy about that terminology. Um, and I think you'll know by the end of the night why I, I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm, not, I'm saying it's going in a good direction, but they're baby steps. That's, that's essentially where I'm at with it. So, uh, as the title suggests, I, I want to begin by, by actually changing it from faith at work to God at work. God, God at work starts to interest me a whole lot more than faith at work. Um, by the way, that's a fantastic painting, except when we took the picture of that, my dear, in London, I stupidly, perhaps you were telling me to hurry up because you were bored and I was frantic. I don't know why, but... Just beside it on the left is. <laughs> just beside it on the left was the plaque saying who the hell painted it. But it's a great picture of the problem we've got. It's actually the picture of a guy. It's the same guy becoming a bishop, right? On the left, he's out in the marketplace, and he's out there in you know in the cut and thrust. And then he gets the light, and he goes into the church, and he gets baptized in the middle. And then he becomes a priest as it goes through and he becomes holier as the picture moves from left to right and he separates himself from the world. Uh, it's a fantastic picture of the problem. Um, <laughs> so, um, is it Ambrose? Is that Ambrose? Ambrose of Milan. Oh, is it? It's Ambrose of Milan, is it? I think it might well be. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it could be, in which case, if we... If we, if we Google Ambrose of Milan, we might... No, but if we Google that, we might find the painter. We've got a clue now. Thank you. Anyway, so that's the problem. And what it goes to show is that this is actually not a recent issue, what we're talking about. It's not like this is today's issue. This is actually, I think, an issue that's dogged the, the Christian church probably for close to 2,000 years, in my, in my view. And, and so, so uh, it doesn't mean it's, we can't make progress on it, but it does mean it's quite a deep issue. So... Um, Look, I think the, the so-called faith at work movement is very important. Um, the people that I know who are doing a great job beginning it, um, as far as I can work out, the, the real leader of it's Tim Keller. Um, now, he's not the originator of it. Miroslav Volf actually wrote his um, PhD on faith at work. Um, so people in our era have been thinking about it before. But I think Tim, with all of his... Uh, preaching abilities and, and leadership abilities has gone a long way toward it. Because what he did, of course, was he set up uh, the Redeemer Church, isn't it? The Redeemer in New York. And quite interestingly, um, when he did that, New York had almost no churches in it. I mean, it's really quite bizarre. It's not like Sydney. Um, you know, the, the, the huge expanse of you know, Manhattan had hardly any 
churches in it. So it was a, a bit of an invasion. And I think in America, at least, and I think it's much more so in America than here, faith is more of a rural movement than a city movement. You know, the city is the, is the dark world of the investment bankers and commerce and faith's out in the farm. So, you know, within the American context, him moving there was more significant than it might be here. But, and then little wonder he set up a faith at work institute or something. Um, they call it the Gotham Institute. And he got a woman to run it whose name, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but she was an ex-Silicon Valley CEO. And they've done some great, great stuff. It's actually worth Googling. And I think uh, some of their talks are really good. I think um, they're addressing this huge problem, which is the vacant space of Monday to Friday. And it is really vacant. So um, uh, here's a quote from a really good, if you did want to get into it, there's a, there's a very good summary work by David Williams. It's actually I think it might be called God at Work. And so David is a friend of Miroslav's. It's actually more like a summary of the Faith at Work movement, and it's very, very balanced, but it's pretty despairing. Um, he, uh, David apparently was uh, a private equity banker, a Christian, who did want to um, take his faith forward. All the people I talk to like this kind of end up leaving work and going into the academy. I'm, I'm like the last man standing. There's no way I'm going to do that. I, I, I love the world of uh, commerce too much. But anyway, he wrote this book. It's, it's well worth a read. And this quote comes from the book. It's really heartrending. Um, In the almost 30 years of my professional career, my church has never once suggested that there be any type of accounting of my, of my on-the-job ministry to others. My church has never offered to improve those skills which could make me a better minister, nor has it ever asked me if I needed any kind of support in what I was doing. There has never been an inquiry into the types of ethical decisions I must face or whether I was seeking to commu communicate my faith to my co-workers. By the way, the kind of limited vision in those sentences is, is, is probably the biggest indication of how much his church was failing in because he's essentially reduced it to ethics and evangelism, but still great good heart. I have never been in a congregation where there was any type of public affirmation of a ministry in my career as a sales manager. In short, I must conclude that my church really doesn't have the least interest in whether or how I minister in my daily work. Bill Deal, former sales manager at Bethlehem Steel. And I think a lot of people could probably write something like that. I don't know about all of you, but... It's, uh, and, and Williams goes into why and how and statistics and so on, but there's this just big kind of Monday to Friday, got nothing practical to say to you. So does that ring bells with people here? Um, now, um, so in response, I think the Faith at Work movement has made some good steps, but here's my, this diagram has always been my worry, that um, this is my major worry, that if the Faith at Work movement, essentially on the left, that we've got faith, the world of faith, and on the right, we've got the world of work. And if there is, if the faith at work movement is no more than a new distribution mechanism for the same old message, it won't, it won't work. If, it's, if all it is is, is, is is saying, let's open up a new kind of marketing channel called workplace where you can evangelise, and the, there is no depth in your, in your connection, to the world of work, because the deeper you get connected to the world of work, it'll challenge your faith. Let me just give you a very simple example. One of the first things that challenged my faith in a good way was I found the anomaly that some of the best people I met in the world of work 
who had the most courage, who had the most vision, who had the most selflessness were atheists. And equally, I found some Christians of whom I would say were pretty close to the opposite. Now, this is a bit shaking if you've got a brittle, superficial faith where Christians are right and unbelievers are wrong, isn't it? So either you throw your faith out or you modify it or you start to say there's something wrong with my faith here. I've got to kind of rethink it. So that's certainly been a journey that I've been on. I dedicated my PhD to two men, both of whom have passed away. One was a believer, a Catholic believer, but the other was an atheist, a Jewish atheist. And they both, they both opened huge doors for me and made my success possible. So I'm indebted to both men. Um, so um, if you've got that fairly narrow distribution mechanism, insofar as there's a practical so what that I've seen, it's one of two things. It's ethics or evangelism. Either, you know, the voice of ethics or else it's, you know, evangelise. And, and I think they're, um, you know, just, they're just like very... I'm not saying you d- that neither of those things are important, but I am saying they're very thin. So I hope tonight to paint a bigger picture and give us a, a bigger framework um, of how we might think about this. Um, and I, I like, I mean, the big phrase I want to begin working with is the phrase uh, that we are co-workers with God. Uh, and that's really what I'm going to explore, co-workers with God. So I'm going to duck out of this for the moment and play you a video. this country and as president, I have learned that our identities do not have to be defined by putting someone else down, but can be enhanced by lifting somebody else up. That They don't have to be defined in opposition to others, but rather by a belief in liberty and equality and justice and fairness. And the embrace of these principles as universal doesn't weaken my particular pride, my particular love for America. It strengthens it. My belief that these ideals apply everywhere doesn't lessen my commitment to help those who look like me or pray as I do or pledge allegiance to my flag. But my faith in those principles does force me to expand my moral imagination and to recognize that I can best serve my own people. I can best look after my own daughters by making sure that my actions seek what is right for all people and all children and your daughters and your sons. This is what I believe, that all of us can be co-workers with God. And our leadership and our governments and this United Nations should reflect this irreducible truth. Thank you very much. Pretty inspiring. Yeah, that was his address last week to the United Nations, and um, it ended with uh, the phrase, quite stunning, the irreducible truth that we must all be co-workers with God. It's worthwhile reading the whole, looking at the whole speech. It's, It's quite a breathtaking speech where... The scope of his interest is the, is the entire planet and where we're at and how we read where we're at. Um, 
But the phrase uh, uh, that we're all co-workers with God, um, by the way, this is, uh, this is uh, no, we've got past that, this is his full text. He actually was, was uh, basing it on an earlier paragraph where he quoted Martin Luther King about a few minutes before that. Sitting in a prison cell, a young Martin Luther King wrote that, quote, human progress never rolls on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. That's the phrase that he, that's why he ends the speech with that phrase, that we must all be co-workers with God. So, of course, as a younger Christian in, in my sacred secular world, I would have been thrown by this language straight away because he's talking to all of humanity. He's talking to the United Nations. He's not asking, it's not an altar call. Um, um, so, you know, I wouldn't quite know how to handle that. Um, and... Uh, um, so, if we want to actually get a broader picture of what it is uh, of the faith at work movement and a broader picture of what of, of God at work in the world, um, here, here are the key principles that I have developed and found in my life and my journey, which of course I've told people about before. Um, just to quickly recap it in, in short form. Um, I was a school teacher. That was my first career. I taught English literature at Barker um, because the, you know the, I, I was able to share the gospel there. That's uh, almost okay in the kind of high road, low road world. Um, I wasn't a minister, but I was a teacher. Um, I decided to leave and to go into the world of commerce um, as a consultant. Uh, which shocked everybody, including myself. Um, and people were pretty disappointed because if I did have a trajectory that was natural given my gifts for teaching, um, it should have been into a Bible college and become a theologian or something. That, you know, that's what it should have been. But there was just such an anomaly for people that I would go and become an advisor in the halls of commerce. Um, and so I, I did do that. Um, I still had a sacred secular split in my mind, although I felt God's calling. I didn't only feel God's calling, I felt this enormous desire to live a seamless life. I just hated having to change language between church and work. You know, I just hated that. I just felt something inside of me was um, not right, and, and I... I thirsted for a seamless life. Now, all I had to do was catch up with God because I was having experiences which were forcing me into that kind of seamlessness. And, you know, after about, that was 30 years ago, I suppose after about 10 years, I would say my theology began to catch up with where God was at. And now I would say for the last 20 years, I cannot even identify segregation in my mind or belief system. So um, I, I'm talking out of that experience tonight. So first thing uh, is that the whole faith at work issue, I think we need to reframe it. Because faith at work as it stands is a religious polarity, a religious choice. On the one side I have faith, on the other side I have work. And in behind that there's the sacred secular, as posed that, uh, that, that, that issue is a religious issue. I believe we need to make it a bigger issue. 
I think the bigger issue is between the private life and the public space. This is not a Christian issue. This is a, a real issue. It has to do with meaning. You know, what of myself and what of meaning can we bring into the public space? So that's the first battle I would fight. I'm not fighting a faith at work battle, but I'm fighting a battle to say work has to be meaningful. Public life, I'd prefer to say, has to have meaning. And meaning has to come from individual beliefs. Let's bring my whole self to work. Framed that way, uh, which is another way of putting it, is between the reflective life and the active life, a lot of people are signing up for that. That is, a, that is a real issue for a lot of people. The divorce we force on people between the inner soul and the flourishing life and the public life, between having a life where there's joy and meaning and development and having a life where I earn pragmatically money. And I think the utilitarianism of vocational education is driving that wedge further and further apart. Uh, we can go one step higher than that. Um, and I think this is what my life is about. We're actually talking about the relation between the individual and the state. Uh, and this, this relationship between the individual and the state is as, uh, is as old as Plato. It's in many ways one of the biggest issues in the world because the state is all about coercion. It's all about unity. It's all about control. That's what states want to do. And how can you actually accommodate the individual flair and creativity in a big system where I want compliance? This is a huge issue. And Plato began it, and, and you come out on the right wing or the left wing, depending where you come. And uh, so my life, when I wrote my PhD, uh, my dear friend Richard Buchanan told me, unfortunately, I hadn't finished. I had another chapter to write. He said, you don't. Tony said, you have to tell me why you consult. You haven't said that yet. So I wrote the eighth chapter, and the eighth chapter, I, I knew that he knew the answer, but I, he wanted me to force myself to recognise it. And the answer was, I, I realise I don't consult to improve organisations, make them more efficient, make them more productive. I'm not like that. I, why do I consult? I consult because I want to reframe the relationship and covenant between the individual and the state away from master and servant towards... Um, you know, a role that will accommodate creativity. That's what I realised. Now, when you do that, you suddenly find you've moved the debate exactly in the areas that uh, Miroslav was suggesting that theology around the world needs to do, not away from religion into what's the good life. This is a universal topic. Everyone's interested, and we've really, you know, we who have faith have a licence to play there. And beyond what's the good life, what's the good society? So that's the first thing, is reframing the issue in broader terms. Does that make sense with people? We could write a book on that. But So let me give you a quote out of interest. This quote is by a man who is the managing director of Accenture in Australia, the largest uh, professional services firm in the world. He runs all their Australian operations. The article was called, How Accenture Will Lead Australia Out of Despair, rather. I happen to know where, his name is Bob Easton, I happen to know where he's coming from. This is what he wrote, this is what he's saying, this is how he's going to market. A flourishing organisation is one that feels good and one that functions well. It is one where everybody's inspired to bring their whole selves to work each and every day. It's when innovation is arriving from everywhere, 
both inside and outside of the organisation, and it's where remarkable value is created with external stakeholders, be it customers, consumers, suppliers, investors in the community. That's a flourishing organisation, and that is the state that all organisations should be striving for. I know he's extremely sincere about this, but like, that sounds like a religious speech, doesn't it? I mean, but this is, the, you know, this is an issue of what is a good society and how do we build a good society? So this is how I'd be framing the debate. And he's saying, of course, bring your whole selves to work. The second thing that we need to do is to widen this concept of mission. You know, um, it's a default mechanism that I, I just hear all the time and read all the time that mission is evangelism. Mission is, you know, as far as the church is concerned, is framed in uh, evangelistic terms. It is framed in terms of um, full-time service and so on. That's, that's how I keep hearing it. People say they don't mean that, but their language betrays that's what's in their picture in their mind. And people like that salesman from Bethlehem Steel can't find a place in that concept, except to give money to the church to help them with their mission. So I'm a funder of the mission, is the best I can do. Um, what I'm saying is that that view of mission is actually okay. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it's way too narrow. And um, it's the scope of mission that we have to re reframe. Um, and, and here's how. Um, as we presently frame it, the mission is the salvation of souls. And it's very much based upon a world of Genesis 3 and redemption. And um, the task is evangelism. So I'm a really big believer in looking at educational institutions to find out what people believe. So if you go to a you know, Bible college or missionary college, you, it, you look at the curriculum and you say, what task are you being equipped to do by coming out of here? You know, it'll be biblical exegesis, it'll be preaching. If it's more college, it mightn't go much beyond that. Um, you might get into pastoral care and, and some semi-counselling thing. Um, but once you move past that tight world, that's all you've been taught to do. It's really a salvation of souls toolkit you get. So what, what am I suggesting as a a widening of scope. Essentially, we, the mission is changed to the salvation of the earth. What do you mean by the word salvation? I mean, whenever anyone uses that word in salvation of souls, challenge them. Say, what, what do you mean by, what do you think the Bible means by salvation? I mean, I think it would be a great thing to do. I haven't done it recently, but just actually take the word salvation, get a concordance and start reading its use in the Bible. And see, how many times does it actually specifically refer to the salvation of souls? You'll get something like 10%. And Isaiah, it's the salvation of the earth, the heavens and the earth. This is God's work. I'm not suggesting that we are in any ways getting rid of God's work. We're joining his work. That, therefore, begins in Genesis 1 and 2. So, practically speaking, I would say... When I was a young Christian, I only went to Genesis 1 and 2 to argue about evolution. It's the only reason I went there. Um, this seamless life that I clicked over into, and it, I was really helped by reading some phenomenal thinkers on it. I didn't get there on my own. 
I just started reading and rereading and reading and rereading Genesis 1 and 2. It began to dominate my mind. Of course, then I found out that I'm, all I'm doing is joining the writers of the Old Testament in, uh, in, 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 the, in the way that the archetypal story of Genesis 1 dominates the Old Testament. Because we don't see that, we don't see obvious things like Psalm 104, which is a very long psalm, is a complete paraphrase and amplification, verse by verse, of the seven days of creation. But I read that before, it never occurred to me, because I didn't realise that it was actually the dominant motif behind that psalm. I've left the question marks here as to what... Because definitely, and the reason that I'm actually interviewing people is I think this is the new R&D. If that was the scope, so what are the tasks? And to be honest with you, the rubber, I'm not going to get onto this tonight, but the rubber would hit the road in a new curriculum. That's where the rubber would hit the road, and that's why what you're doing, Paul, at Alpha Crucis is so important. If I said the mission's the salvation of the earth, what task would I teach you? I'm obviously, obviously exegesis, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but is it going to be that task? So what is it? And um, I think that's R&D. So I think that's one of the reasons why I want to pursue that by interviewing people who've been out there to see what's happening. But to do that, there are some paradigm shifts we have to accomplish. And, and when I say accomplish, they're like big doors to open. I'm going to give you about eight of them. I'm giving you them quickly, but I'll tell you, you could write a book on every one of them. So they're really big issues. But it's very, very exciting. Um, whoops. The first one is that you should re when you read Genesis 1, you should reconceive the object of creation beyond natural systems to include social systems. Let that sink in. God did not just create waterfalls and wind and birds and vegetation. He created activity systems and social systems and cultural systems. Now, if you want to explore it, the guy who really I first came across that was this book here. It's called Creation and Reality by Michael... Welker, W-E-L-K-E-R, very profound, heavy book. But when he goes into Genesis 1 and 2, he amplifies what I've just said. It's the first time the thought entered my head about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But it's real. It's not make up. So I work all the time inside of organisational structures. I work, just as an example, with things like authority. And it occurred to me, I mean, authority didn't evolve. It's actually something God created. We human beings didn't make authority structures. God did. Actually, reflections of the divine economy. Just as there's a law of gravity that we didn't make, but we work within it, there's, a law, there's laws of authority. So the concept that created, that, that, that part of creation was social systems is very important and mind expanding. The second thing is that the earth is, is to be seen as a lever for the entire cosmic order. What God is doing on the earth is a microcosm of his intentions for the entire universe. That's what I actually happen to believe. When I do speculate about the new heavens and the new earth, I imagine the, the life and the civilization of the earth being expanded to the entire cosmos. But, but God's love is for the, all of creation, but the, the, the earth is, a, is, a, is an arc or vessel to the entire cosmic order because it's the arc of life. 
where life is. Uh, the next one is uh, somewhat similar, but it's very important. The, the system in which we live is a, on the earth is the epitome of a created order as opposed to an uncreated order, meaning it's bounded by space and time as opposed to the heavens. So it's not like the earth is some kind of byproduct of God. It's an alternative. The created order is an alternative dominion. And it's bounded by time and space and probably always will be in the new heavens and the earth. I mean, I used to think time would be destroyed. I don't now so much. But we are living in a zone. To be created is, is not some kind of lower order thing that will disappear and we melt up into the uncreated. We will always be created beings. Just got to let that sink in. We will always be in the created order. It's fascinating to think about that. This order is actually the object of God's creation and he isn't going to change it. Uh, so part of the created order is that it, it will always involve matter and always will continue to involve matter. So, for instance, the word glory, which Anne and I have been talking about a lot because I've been reading John 16, 17 a, a lot of late, particularly John 17, John 17 is the most important prayer in, a, in all of human history. It's the, it's the point at which the cosmos was defined. Jesus' prayer before his crucifixion. All the purposes of God were coming to a crossroads and the final challenge, and that prayer was the purposes would be accomplished. Do you think he prayed that our sins would be forgiven in John 17? Do you think he prayed that redemption would occur? Never ever enters the vocabulary of John 17. What did he pray in John 17? He did, but there's something more important. No. What's the whole burden of John 17? Glory. Glory. Glorify me. The hours come. Glorify me and then glorify them. What does glory mean? Glory means that matter will be inhabited by God without God busting it apart like a nuclear explosion. So the whole idea of glory is connected with matter and the future of the material world. Um, Life starts to become enormously interesting in this model because life on earth is a gift of God. It is not an intrinsic property and it is always, in my view, in the Bible, delivered by the Spirit. I mean, birds only sing because of the Spirit. Plants only photosynthesize because of the Spirit. We're at the apex of that with a form of life that's of the highest order, but life in any form is the gift of God. And then life has levels of ascendancy, and we're at the top of those levels of ascendancy because of consciousness. So once you say that the dominions, the earth, and the salvation of the earth, you start to think about the earth a lot. I do anyway. And, and those are some of the thoughts that have, I mean, you could, they're, 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 they're shot through in the Old Testament, these thoughts. But, but you start to, to look preciously at this thing called uh, the earth and the planet. 
The third thing, having widened that sense of mission and scope, is you develop a new definition and theory of what work means. This is very important. And it must be based upon the work of God. A lot of people just don't do this, to be honest with you. I mean, Jacques Alul, who I think is fantastic in his writing, and he doesn't do this. And as a result, the, the debate's too narrow. Um, this is really important. This was the one that was a stumbling block for me, because I'd always uh, implicitly assumed work is a result of the curse, right, in Genesis 3. And that's the model you've got to smash. Um, so it's actually a continuation of Genesis 1 and 2, where God worked. So that, that is quite breathtaking. That, that will give all of us something to think about for a long, long time. That means work is not problem solving, fixing things up. Whereas I, I, I definitely was. I mean, I think it's probably explicit in many places that you know, the curse in Genesis 3 is your work. So that, that, therefore, all work is a result of the curse. And as a result, you get this kind of boring, slobby view of heaven that we won't have to work anymore. It'll just be like Saturday. <laughs> like, we'll sit around with beers and watch TV, like, for eternity. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that's the corollary of that vision. That we'll get rid of all work. And little wonder people find heaven boring, you know, and say, well, I'm not going there, you know. So, but when you switch it to, so we're saying it's got to start in one and two. The next thing is that work is and always will be the modus operandi of the created order. God the Father in himself does not need to work. He says it and it is, but we have to work. And that means the exercise, this is my definition, of personal energy, personalised energy within the constraints of creation to express the glory of God and accomplish his purposes. And I think that will ever be the case. You know, if I want to get fit, I've got to go on a training program. I can't just imagine it and it happens. We'd love that to be the case, that we're in an era, an era of effort, planning, and it ever will be so. And that's a Genesis 1, 2 thing, not a Genesis 3 thing. Um, but as Ian Proven brought out, I thought, brilliantly, in the, uh, probably his most breathtaking talk, which was Genesis 1 and 2 had its problems. He definitely speculated death was in Genesis 1 and 2. The, you know, I'd never come across this before, but I just love the way that Ian brought that out. And it's, it's very interesting. So there are unsolved issues or paradoxes in Genesis 1 and 2, the paradoxes between creation and transcendence is how I would put them. So one of them is change. I used to, you know, dump on dear old Plato a lot, but of late I've recognised that he needs a lot more sympathy because he was bright enough to recognise the problem that we aren't, which is change is problematic. But it's interesting. So how can I have change eternally? Now, what Rick will say when... He comes out to join you, Paul. He'll say we need to change our view of who God is as a result of all this. Can God learn? Is God surprised? Yeah, it's very interesting. He's going to say yes, I think. So, um, uh, 
these deep paradoxes, I'm expecting God will solve brilliantly. So when Jesus rose from the dead and glory inhabited matter, I'm presuming somehow or other change was able now to be accommodated in the glorious eternal purpose of God. I have no idea how that's going to happen, but it, something tells me it's got to happen. <laughs> um, change is so good and so bad. At my age, like every birthday is reminding me I'm a step closer to the grave, but my beautiful little grandchildren, it's exciting when they move from two to three and three to four. Would I like them to stay as two-year-olds? No way, the terrible twos. I'm looking forward to when they're three. When does this suddenly change that I've gone over the hill and now I'm going down to the chasm and every birthday's bringing me... It's the same principle, it's change. So how's that going to get glorious? I don't know, we'll have to look out for that one, but it's intriguing. Now, I think we need to concede the fact that Genesis 3 did muck things up, and, and I'm very aware that there's a lot of evil and a lot of you know, darkness that definitely entered the, to, to complicate matters, but I don't think it's the, it's the essential definition of work. That, that's how I'd now, I'd now put it. And therefore, our definition of work must have no requirement to have the word sin in it or the concept of sin. So that's the new theory of work. Um, making sense? So far, I'm building this up. Uh, Luther's theory of work, I, I must confess, having dumped on dear old Luther, he did a jolly good job on the theory of work. Um, so I did some research for this. Uh, so I have to say, sorry, Luther, for you know, criticising you too much. <laughs> um, Luther was magnificent on the theory of work, really was. And, and it was um, really interesting to me that he had the mental agility to develop a theory of work having just destroyed salvation by works, if that makes sense. Um, he ha having destroyed salvation by works, he's now got to say, well, is any kind of work worthwhile? And I think his answer was brilliant. I mean, I think we might take it a bit further, but I, I would not want to be arrogant about what he achieved in the 16th century. So his theory of work was really fantastic. It just kind of goes like this. God is wanting to bless creation, but he will only ever do it indirectly through human agents. So human agents will mediate his love and blessing for earth and people. So God is inexorably, um, vastly committed to bless, but only through the channel. That blessing will always be, well, not always, perhaps the sun shines without us, but you know, in general, he's, he's wanting human beings to be the mediators of that blessing. Does that make sense? And he wrote about it as he's a magnificent communicator. So he gives the example of the baker. Like God could just feed us out of grain and manna. He could do that. But actually he chooses bakers who are going to have to process, cook, distribute and give us bread. So we get bread on our table, but a human being has had to work all the way through to do that. And he sees that as the distribution of the blessing of God that is no more holy, that the monk is no more holy than the baker. I love that picture. If we wanted to take his picture a bit further and kind of move a bit into a more modern world, the cobbler who's made shoes for us has used God's resources because he had to, had to use God's resources to make the shoes but an element of design comes into this and we get cool shoes and I'm wearing cool shoes today. Have a look at them later. They're really cool. They're from, these shoes come from um, 
<laughs> Sorry, I've just got to take them off. I've, I've got to get this right. Crockett and Jones, Crockett and Jones and my dear wife and I bought these in a lovely little shop near Harrods and Crockett and Jones have been making these shoes in the same manufacturing facility in the Midlands for 150 years. The same pair. The same pair, yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of love in these shoes. There's stories in them. There's, there's people who've had two or three generations working in that factory. So now I'm getting the blessing mediated via that. And if I went up higher, then there's a businessman. There's someone who actually gets a whole lot of cobblers together and frames them into a working institution that is able to distribute more shoes to more people with higher quality. And if I went up even further, there's the prince who's created the systems within which all of this occurs. This is very important, very, very important, this little diagram, because the prince in our, is today the business titan, is the capitalist. Now, I didn't go into it before, but behind the faith at work squeamishness of the church, there's, there is a kind of Marxism. That's one of the points David Williams makes, that most theologians are closet Marxists. He doesn't say it, but I'm saying it bluntly. They think the marketplace is dirty. Right? Profits are dirty. And that's a very interesting debate to have. Because the alternative, which I believe is what Edmund Phelps, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, claimed is, on the contrary, the marketplace has created freedom for the exercise of creativity. It's what a marketplace does. It lets lots of people do lots of creative things and, and gives them the freedom to do that. So, in my view, the marketplace designer is doing the same work as the baker at a higher level. Does that make sense? Or a broader level. Let's not stop there because the problem, that's marketplace. Uh, let's look at the teachers. The teachers are bringing light and understanding, as are the artists, as are the poets, as are the philosophers. They are actually mediating the blessing of God the same way through. They're translating, they're explaining. They're doing what the baker does. Because why? God wants joy. This is going to be very important in the moment. I, I tell you what, I've, I've, I've had some interesting journeys in this. One is Ratzinger. He's going to come up. Ratzinger's fantastic on the theology of beauty. But what Jonathan Edwards added to Ratzinger, why is beauty important? Because beauty is joy, and God never works without joy. That's, that's worth thinking about, isn't it? God, Jonathan Edwards said God never works without joy. So who gives us our joy? What, Rat, what Ratzinger said about the theory of beauty is it's got to have a wow factor. It's got to shock us. We see beauty and we've just, I've walked past this every day and I've never seen what a beautiful thing that little flower is. And that's what the poet does. That's what the, they, they shine light onto God's world. That is God's work. And let's not forget the social space. It's probably the most important space of all where we're creating social systems from the families and friendships. This is equally a place of mediating blessing. And Luther's vision encompassed all of that. I mean, he didn't go into those full depths that I'm doing. But does that make sense? That's work. That's all the work of God. So um, let's now go deeper into the work. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give you now my, this is very much my world. Um, and this, I think this is new. Not many people have talked about this that I know of, but I think it's the heart of the matter. 
um, that we are continuing the creative act of God, which is in Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That second verse is to me one of the most epic sentences in human literature. It is, it is the condensed poetic ex, uh, expression of the creative act. I draw it like this. The, what we are looking at here in God's activity is a transformation of chaos into order. The Genesis 1 verse 2 is not the creation of matter out of nothing. Something was there in Genesis 1 verse 2, but a seething, unproductive mass, hence that cloudy bubble. And the famous Hebrew phrase of tahu wa bahu, I think that's right, <laughs> I don't do Hebrew, but it's, it's actually two words, it's formless and empty. I think John Walton made the point that that phrase is only repeated once more in the Bible for a howling wilderness, I think, in Exodus. So there's this howling wilderness that matters there, but it's totally unproductive. It's sort of like the Big Bang Theory of the universe. And the, I see three epic states there of darkness, formless, and emptiness. Now, none of those are evil. But they, are, they have unfulfilled potential. The, the verb, the verb, very interestingly, was the Spirit of God hovered. Hovered. And out of the hovering came the beginnings of order. And I think John Walton was just so illuminating when he said God's entire work is the creation of order. And as he expressed it, he wants to turn the universe from a house into a home. And the order is not some mathematical ordering, it's, a, it's to be a habitat, it's a personalising of creation. So that ordering that we begin to see in Genesis 1 and verse 2, that ordering doesn't finish, this is very important. We are not presented with some gift-wrapped finished thing that we're there to enjoy, we are presented with the beginnings of a great work which we are to continue. We human beings are to continue it. That's Genesis 2, the garden image. Now, um, if you look carefully, the first three days of creation address those one after the other. Darkness, God created light. So there is always a transition of light. That's why I put the teachers in. God is interested in turning Darkness into light. He always is. He's behind every teacher, every musician, every poet. They're doing God's work because God wants to explain things. God wants you to understand things. And God doesn't want a dry explanation. He wants you to cheer at the end and say, that was fantastic. Like any great teacher should have you jumping up and clapping. Because now I can see something that I thought was ordinary is something it is magnificent. That is the work of God and it began in Genesis 1 verse 2 when he turned darkness into light and he's always turning darkness into light. That's probably the one of the two big themes of John's gospel. So anyone who wants to explain something to someone, <laughs> I've got passionate there. <laughs> if, if we look at a, um, you know, a parent who's just skilled at teaching a child, 
That's why education is such a noble thing and so important. It's continuing the work of God. God doesn't want animalistic impulses. He wants educated impulses. The next one is um, structure. I could talk a lot about it, but the essence of structure is the separation of systems. That is the essence of structure, which is what happens in verse 2. He pulled apart the waters from the waters. It's boundaries. This is the heart of systems. Without, without, without that structuring, you can't get anything done. A mess, a mess doesn't create anything. And, you know, we're confronted with messes everywhere. We're confronted with messes in conversations that go wrong and get all messed up and get chaotic and get... I, I spend a lot of... I, I, I have, we do a lot of um, major work in strategic conversations in multi-stakeholder environments where there's enormous tensions and conflict of interests. And I've walked into this with an instinct that has now been tutored by the scriptures. And people always, they give us a briefing. They give me a briefing, Tony, you've got no idea. X has never got on with Y, got to watch this person, they're going to throw a hand grenade in and kill this whole thing. And, you know, you get this kind of psychological profile of warring fractions, factions, right? And I don't believe it. One of the best organisational psychologists I have ever worked with said to me, Tony, he said someone had asked him to come in and work with a team that was malfunctioning. He said, Tony, they should bring you in first. You'll fix 85% of the problems. I'll fix the remaining 15%. Why? Because I think the problem is confusion. When people are confused and things are messy, they get tense. When you're confused, you get tense. And a lot of tensions are because there's no clarity, there's no structure. And everyone is getting, you know, the adrenaline rises. We bring structure, we bring clarity, peace comes. I'm, there, as, as Ian said to me, the... Uh, the, the, the psychologist who said this, that there will be residual issues, but it's not the main issue. So that's, that's the second thing. Shape is beautiful. God's interested in shape. And then finally, productivity. This is very important. God actually is a God of increase. He wants things to happen. He's not a status quo God. He wants amplification. He wants communication. He wants growth. My whole life is a moral drive against bloody cost-cutting because it chills the soul. Isn't that true? And so many of the big consultancies come in, they're cost-cutting. Everyone feels it's the beginning of the end or the continuation of the end. It's anorexic. We, we can't think of any future in this organisation. Let's cut it and cut it and cut it. And, you know, this causes a great deal of depression. Fear, anxiety. Where, where's hope? Oh, we're going to grow this business. I love any, any you know, entrepreneur who's going to grow something. I'm going to create a few jobs here. And I began to ask myself a few years ago, why do I feel such rage about this? This is an ethical issue. Until I realised the obvious. God is not into cost-cutting. Like, he didn't found the universe on minimalist principles. He wanted the thing to expand and be abundant. He's got to read Ephesians. He's got to have abundance. That's his whole drive. So, this is the epic work of God in creation. Does that bring it alive a little bit? Well, we're continuing that work. Now, um, the three big transformations. Fourthly, this, if it is four, because I might have got my numbers wrong, but this does actually very importantly imply a role 
for human beings. And uh, uh, we've spoken a lot about this in past gospel conversations, so I'm not going to go over it again. But the point is the continuation of this work of creation is now in our hands. God is no longer doing it. He's wanting us to do it. So the transformation is our job. Um, uh, This will have you develop a very strong theory of humanity. There's an enormously strong anthropology behind this. Um, And it includes enormously strong capability to do with the image of God, Imago Dei, Capax Dei, image of God and capable of God. This is where I spend my life. I spoke about this extensively in a couple of the talks on the Trinity. This is the, this is the epic role of human beings to alter reality and play God and design. It is uh, capable of God. An animal is not capable of God. An animal cannot apprehend God and conceive of God. So the hovering is our ability to inaugurate new realities, which animals don't have, um, via the vehicle of language, imagination and reason. That is the faculty that lets us do it. I won't go into it now, but clearly I'm giving a far bigger... Now, the, the early church fathers very much identified reason as the image of God. They definitely did that, and they were right, but they had a narrower conception of reason than we have today. It was much more logical today. We've added the imagination to it. I won't go into that journey, but, but it's still there on the right path. So to have a strong theory of, of what's our job on the planet, everybody's job on the planet... We have to have a very strong anthropology. So that's why um, uh, certainly Rick Watts uh, has been totally, uh, you know, I think Rick's been completely captivated by this, man, uh, this, this idea to the extent he is saying that the new theology is design. He want, he'd much prefer the word design than the word theology. Drop theology. Let's talk about design. What that means is we are, now the word design is problematic. I really like transformation. And, and in, in, in the Renaissance, um, there's a beautiful phrase they used to use, some, some writers use, I love it, it's called shape shifters. Well, I'm on the planet to shift the shape of situations according to this threefold transition. And that could be an argument in the family. That could be a tense situation at work. That could be a six-year transformation program. I don't know what it could be. But we are continually shifting the shape of situations and joining God in his work. So that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's the archetypal picture. Um, there's another really big picture here, which is um, we will now have to have a strong theory of beauty. I don't know if anyone here has heard a sermon on beauty, theology of beauty. Few people have, not many. When you consider that some great theologians have proposed that beauty is the essential character of God, you realise how much we're missing out on. You know, we live in a very utilitarian society, and it's it's sick everywhere with vocationalism and uh, matter of fact uh, pragmatism. 
and it's nowhere more evident than in boardrooms where you've got to do business cases and spreadsheets. The world has changed. The world has changed on account of a lunatic who created the greatest wealth on the planet around beauty. If, if you wanted to do anything in Apple, you have to talk beauty with Steve Jobs. He built this company on aesthetics. Explicitly. Explicitly. Now, people thought that was a hobby. People thought that was a hobby you might do for art. Never that you would take a company from within weeks of bankruptcy, which is where it was in 1998, the second time he took it over, to the wealthiest company on the planet. I don't know if you know, but the wealth of Apple is about 40% of the GDP of Australia. Now, I'm not putting it up as, you know, in itself as, as some kind of heavenly structure. I'm saying this guy got beauty and why we love beauty. And so beauty is much uh, closer to the heart of things than, than we realise. So we have to develop a theology of beauty. I, I won't do it. I won't go there too far tonight. And productivity. This is interesting because I think you need them both. Um, Ratzinger, the Pope, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, the Pope um, before, was he before the previous Benedict. one? Benedict. That's what he's called, Pope Benedict. He's fantastic on beauty. Google it. His writing was breathtaking. He said, beauty gives us wings. Beauty gives us wings. And uh, he was quoting both Thomas Aquinas and C.S. Lewis, who were great inspirations to him. Um, essentially to see the transcendent in the mundane. Now, when you get into beauty, you say, well, what's inside of beauty? Well, this, uh, the, 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 this was Aquinas' definition, but you begin to see how close we are to the character of God, proportionality, integrity and wholeness and clarity. This is now Trinitarian. This is wholes, not parts. This is things in the right balance with each other, like a great symphony. Well, guess how God's designed the universe? So in us creating order, which we began with, we could equally say we're creating beauty, functional beauty. So that means that the good life, we could say, is the beautiful life. We, you know, we believe it, we, we Christians can go into the world championing this, that, that it, we, it, we are champions of the beautiful life. And Christians should be leading the discussion of the beauty in life. Now, Ratzinger, I think he was very powerful. He thought this had to be the new evangelism in a secular world. That Christians should inaugurate the discussion of the beauty in life and beauty as the goal of life. That's a good thought, isn't it? Let's now finish with the last one, the last principle. <clears throat> These are all, uh, this one is getting, getting slightly more towards um, what we might do in our own lives. Uh, this is really important. Um, the key word is discovery. I owe this insight. It actually came out about out of gospel conversation about a few years ago. It was a dialogue between Mark Strom and I and I think Mark had that insight. It just hit him in the middle of the talk. Either he was giving or I was giving. The bad word is application. You say, how do I apply my faith? 
I hear it on Sunday and then I apply it like a band-aid. You know, it's like plastering a wall. I'm going to go out and I'm going to plaster the world with my Christianity. And the world says, don't you dare do that to me. And I don't blame the world. I'm on the world's side, right, on that one. Discovery is an entirely different process and much harder, which Tony Morgan will talk about a lot. It's my job to discover the holy ground I'm standing on. It could be an insurance. It could be being a mother. It could be being a linguist. It's my job to do that. And that'll be, a, you know, if it's a calling for me, a lifelong profession. I mean, I, I work in innovation and creativity. That's where a lot of this is coming from. It's a lifelong profession of finding God where I never expected to find him. Just like Jacob did not expect to find God in the desert. He thought God was not there and God said, you're actually standing in the house of God out here on the desert. And we have to find the Bethel wherever we are. That's where it all begins. Um, now, um, so it'll be, I'm not applying the gospel, I'm not evangelizing. Um, uh, it's, it's really the burning bush principle. And here's what I'm going to finish. Um, the burning bush is very similar to me to um, uh, the ladder from heaven that Joseph, Joseph saw. And um, I have talked before about Moses uh, as a great, possibly the greatest social designer in human history. I don't even think it's possibly now, particularly having heard Ian again, that nobody's close to his league. So, so if I ever get the time, I'll write a book on Deuteronomy and numbers. and I just write it like an organisational designer and strategist. He was designing from scratch a new social system at a national scale. It's got all the elements there. Belief system at the heart, the ten laws, but it goes right out to laws of imprisonment, laws of economics. It's a phenomenal design of a social system. Um, so we can learn, you know, we're doing it. So I think he did a very good version of that shape-shifting. Think, think of what he inherited. He inherited Egypt. Now, Egypt's very, very interesting, and uh, I, I hope when Rick's here next year, he'll give us a lot of talks. <coughs> Shouldn't have said that on the tape, because he might think he's going to get coerced. But anyway. Um, you know, Rick's very interested in Egypt. Because Egypt is the uh, biggest empire in world history in terms of the length of time and the scope of, uh, the scope of its control. Far bigger than Rome. And um, furthermore, furthermore, it's absolutely evident that Egypt, far more than anyone wants to admit in the secular world, influenced Greece. And the Platonic... The mysticism in Platonism and in, in the, in the pre-Socratics came from Egypt. This is interesting because Egypt was the enemy of the revelation of Abraham. And what we see in Moses is the clash between two huge thought systems. One, on the side of the Pharaoh, the biggest empire in world history. The other, like two men and a dog, really. Two men and a staff, I don't know, you know. Moses and Aaron, nobodies. And guess what? The nobodies won, which is kind of prefiguring what happened with Christianity's takeover of the Roman Empire. But this was a bigger takeover in a way. Um, 
So it was an epic confrontation of ideas. What actually happened was he tried first um, on his own, and you know that's when he actually became furious and he he killed the um, the Egyptian slave master. And and what I read there is what a lot of us go through. You know, frustration. I'm young. I'm zealous. I smash around. I mess things up. We've all done that. Um, and uh, and I think we'll keep doing it in life, right? It just like you know. This is why I think sin is so useless as a concept. Was that sin or just youthful incompetence? You know, I mean, <laughs> we've all been there. You know, we're stumbling around. We mess things up, right? Um, we try. He was trying hard. <clears throat> anyway, what then happened, of course, as we know, was a personal confrontation with God on the burning bush. And that's where God introduced himself. I am that I am. So to me, that burning bush is literally, uh, I think it was quite literal, that God showed him the inherent glory and the nuclear energy inside that bush, and it shone. That, that, and that God could do that with any particle of this earth. It contains more energy and glory than we know. And he said, in the most ordinary things, I'm very present. So you know, that, I, I view that burning bush as he discovered God there. So I, I think that is you know, one of the most thought-provoking encounters in all of literature. That's why Coleridge, that's why the Coleridge Room is out there, the all-white one, because you, the reason we can say we've got a bigger picture of the reason is because of Coleridge. Coleridge was the great philosopher of the imagination. And I don't know if any of you have read, I've certainly read out here sometimes the phenomenal definition of the primary imagination. He thought the imagination is I am that I am. We are walking in the footsteps of God when we imagine things. That's what Coleridge said. So after that encounter where he discovered God, that's a, that's a discovery of God, what then happened was essentially the greatest social architecture in human history. Just think how much more powerful he was when he constructed the temple, the social systems. Just think how much wiser he was. Just think of the leverage versus killing that guy in a fit of rage. I think we all go through that journey in life. And I think the transition is that discovery. Now, closing point, this is the last slide. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, of course, you know, I think Walter's I think Ian's kind of picked up the baton from Walter in a way. I would say that a lot. Um, I think they both admire each other, but I think Ian's the new guy. But this book, The Prophetic Imagination, is fantastic. It's all about Moses. It's the prophetic imagination. And, and what Brueggemann would say is that I'm saying we should have prophetic imaginations. And the prophetic imagination does two things. It tears down and it builds up. Always does that. Both. Too often, I think, Christian critics just tear down. You know, it's a kind of socialism, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You always have to say, okay, I've just had a big conversation today in you know, a large social policy area. I won't mention it because it's quite controversial. It's in the indigenous area. We want to make a big move on something, me and my client. And the big move involves tearing down a false agenda, a big political agenda involves tearing it down. Um, for good reasons. It needs to be torn down. It's no good. 
even though there's a lot of power structures behind it. But the people to whom we'll make the argument, my friend and I knew, okay, they'll say, you've got me, what are you going to do to replace it? If all you can do is tear something down, you leave me with nothing. That's nihilism. I, I need an alternative. You've convinced me this is no good, but there's nothing else. And if you cannot imagine, if all you can do is criticise, if you can't create, then you're not helping me. And, and you're really not following in that footsteps of Genesis 1 verse 2 where I could shape something up for you. So, so, so therefore, um, Brueggemann said, that's what Moses did. And we'll close with this quote from the book... Uh, the appearance of a new social reality, i.e. Israel, is unprecedented, unprecedented in human history. Israel in the 13th century is ex nihilo, nothing before, anything like it. Israel can only be understood in terms of the new call of God and his assertion of an alternative social reality. But, you know, all of that was expedited through the agency of Moses. And Moses was the person who could, in Luther's terms radiate the blessing of God in that situation. Now, I, I, I was going to add one other thing to this, which is, I uh, didn't have a slide for it, but I'll say it in conclusion. This is a very grand vision. Um, but the issue can be for a lot of people think, well, I live a small life. Yeah, it might be good if I'm a Moses or if I'm an Obama, but I'm not the President of the United States. Or I'm not, you know, cons advising a large corporation. I live a small life. This is a really important question because there is no such thing as a small life in God's economy. And if you read the parables of Jesus, he makes it very clear. You've just got to be logical about it. Like, Obama might be running America, but he's, if we make God the object of measures between him and any of us, then the difference between Obama and us is so infinitesimal compared to the difference between us and God, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's God who's in charge of bigness and smallness, and God is not interested in bigness or smallness on account of he's big. Right? So it's, it's an in, it's, to him, it's an irrelevant thing. What's he interested in is faithfulness, because God's an amplifier. You might, live a small, you might think you live a small life, but God's intention is to amplify every act of faithfulness to eternal consequences. And that's all he's interested in is faith. Hence his thing about the widow, you know, she just gave a little bit. And as far as he's concerned, God was way more interested in that than some millionaire who gave a ton of money and it cost them nothing. And, and, and God's not against the millionaire, but I think it's, it's really important to say that uh, all of these truths, God gives each of us a sand pit. We all get one, big and small, and that's providence and situational and all sorts of things. And... Uh, uh, I think we do have a job to be faithful in our sandpit, stretch it perhaps. Nothing wrong with stretching our sandpits. I think that's quite good. And um, uh, when I mentioned this ages ago to Ian Jagelman, Ian pointed me to a verse in 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul, he uses a Greek word three times in the one verse, which because I was telling Ian about the sandpit theory and he said, well, Actually, he thinks that literally the Greek word that Paul was using meant sandpit when Paul was, he was defending his ministry. And he said, um, I, I can't give you the Greek word, but the word measure, I think, is the word that, was the, the word that Ian was pointing me to. Uh, 
when, when these people are measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves with themselves, they're not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service or the sandpit that God himself has assigned to us. So we all get assigned by providence and situation some kind of sphere of service. He said, well, we'll do that. Um, a sphere that also includes you. Um, uh, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will expand. So I've got a sphere of service. I'm going to work within it. And my hope is it will expand. And, then, and so I think this uh, uh, is a good place to sort of finish that... Um, that these kind of wonderful truths apply in big and small sandpits. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a much bigger picture there of work and faith at work um, that uh, can, can really frame, it really blows apart this kind of, you know, this choice between sacred and secular. And um, it says... You know, I think I, I, I've attempted to give some, some shape and framework, the beginnings of a conversation to this kind of concept of what it is to be a co-worker with God. Now, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's the beginning of a conversation. Um, as I said earlier, I, I think the real acid test would be what kind of curriculum would you make out of this to equip people to be, be shape shifters in, in the different sandpits we've got in life.